Good morning. As we record, this is January 25th, 2017, and I would like to personally welcome you to our cyberpunk dystopia. I'm Sam Livingston Gray. Sam, that's a little too close to the truth. Can we just be greater than code? Greater than code it is. Welcome to Greater Than Code, everybody. Thank you, and I am thrilled to be here today with Jay Bobo. Woo! I'm so excited to be back. I know I've been gone for a while, but I'm here. It's going to be a great podcast because all of our podcasts are amazing. We're here with Andre Arco and Karina Season. Great to be here, Jay. Yeah, I'm really excited about getting to be on Greater Than Code. Thanks for having us on. Karina Cizona is a developer advocate and certified sex educator. She spends a lot of time thinking about the unexpected cultural effects of our decisions as programmers. Karina is also the founder of Callback Women, which is on a mission to radically increase gender diversity at the podium of professional programmers' conferences. And Andre Arco has been writing Ruby since 2004, created the jQuery Rails gem, and joined the Bundler core team before 1.0. He founded and runs Ruby Together, the Ruby Developer Trade Association, and today he leads the combined Bundler and Ruby Gems team. Welcome to the show, Karina and Andre. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks. I'm actually super excited to be on Greater Than Code because this means that Amy can no longer hold her show over me. Now we each have a show. Well, unless hers is better. I'm sure it is. <laughs> Oh, Amy Weeblewell? She's my partner. Oh, cool. Origin stories, origin stories. Yes, please. Who are you people? How did you gain your superpowers, meaning like learning how to code and everything else that you are proud of? And you may say to our listeners, well, how did I get here? (laughs) (laughs) So I, I regularly ask myself, how did I get here? I guess, as you just mentioned in my bio, I started doing Ruby in 2004 when it was completely useless. Uh, (laughs) With no reason to Ruby at all, Rails didn't exist. Libraries were scarce on the ground. If you wanted to reuse someone else's Ruby code, you had to find their homepage and download a tarball and (laughs) stuff it into site Ruby yourself. Uh, So that was fun times. But I was in college and doing a CS degree, undergrad, and I just really wanted to write some code that was more enjoyable to write than C++, which is what all my classes were in. Here, here. And so I was kind of like, I guess at the time it felt like obscure and or unusual languages. And Ruby just like struck me as incredibly enjoyable to write and incredibly enjoyable to read. And I kind of like loved how much it felt like a fun activity. And so I started doing a ton of Ruby. I read through the entire pickaxe twice before I even had the Ruby interpreter installed on my machine. It was fun times. And then after I'd been like playing really enthusiastically with Ruby for a while, I think my very exciting and uh, meaningful project was I tried to copy the interface of iTunes in a web browser as a CGI script. And then on the back end, it like executed Apple scripts to control iTunes on my dorm room <laughs> server. It was very exciting. So you ported uh, iTunes to the browser. Oh, no, no, I mean, just like the interface window, right? right? So it like it listed songs and it let you filter and it let you like play, pause, skip, back, change volume. Wow. And it, it never worked that great, but it looked a lot like iTunes. And as long as you were okay with the delay of running everything via OSA script on the command line, which is like four seconds, it worked. <laughs> and then I saw this email on the RubyTalk mailing list from this weird Danish guy named David something. And it was like, I just released, I think it was Rails 0.10. 
And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I've been struggling with Ruby CGI scripts. Like, I would like something that was easier than that. And then I started using Rails and uh, swore a lot to myself as I started using it. And it was amazing. And I guess history and inevitability led us here. But they were good swears, right? I said a lot of, of good, oh, wow, this is amazing swears as I tried out Rails. In oh, so it was like, this was a holy shit, not yes, what the fuck am I supposed to do here? Okay, yeah. I said holy shit to myself a lot as I was trying out Rails in comparison to that C- CGI script that I had been using. And then, you know, just history and inevitability. And yeah, now I, I still write Ruby because I really enjoy writing Ruby. And uh, I still pay my bills by writing Rails apps, really, fundamentally. Karina, origin story. Right on. How I got started is that I have a very eclectic background, uh, meandering through various college majors and careers. So I started off uh, working my way through college by doing office work and uh, found that there was a lot of need for various database stuff. And so I was doing a lot of database development, got into relational databases, was totally awed about, oh, my God, you can do that. You can link things together like this. And started doing scripting for those until finally I reached a point where I needed true programming in order to accomplish things. And so started learning purely to kind of solve those basic business office problems that were going on. And little by little started inching my way into this being something that I could do for a living. The funny thing is that in college I was actually studying theater but I was at a school that had a very good theater department and a really good CS department. And I found that at night I was hanging out with my great CS buddies instead of my great uh, theater buddies. So that's a little cue about where my real interests probably are. Although uh, now as a developer uh, evangelist, I think it really circles back to using both of those that I'm able to use my theater background and my programming background and my passion for both to really be able to talk to people about things that I think really matter and that aren't getting as much attention as I really believe that they should. Um, so at this point, I have, I think, some reputation as a speaker, and that wouldn't be possible without having that convergence of both backgrounds. So I love where I come from. I love those roots. Uh, in the meantime, also, because I just love to do too many things at once, I was also in my spare time doing work as a sex educator. And that slowly became things where I was getting certifications. And that's also really merged. If you look closely at my talks, almost all of them have a thread of sex education influences going through. So it's really my way of sneaking in that knowledge to people as well, that it's about things like, for instance, how we think about gender as programmers, how we think about people's relationships, um, how we think about a lot of things about the human side and make assumptions that aren't nearly as valid as we think they are until we have a good grounding in sex education and realize the world is a lot more complex than we initially imagine. So taking some of the limitations of our education, because so many of us are very grounded in CS and not nearly grounded enough in a broader range of subjects and really trying to introduce more of the social sciences side of things. Yeah, that's awesome. In sex education, you ha- you must think about culture a lot. There's a lot of dealing with what is like a scientific fact and what is a cultural I don't want to say decision. What is a cultural norm or default, perhaps? Yes, exactly. 
I would say both of those words. There's norms and there's decisions that we make about, you know, what we think is a norm or what we think should be a norm. Certainly that's sometimes the case as programmers, you know, we're deciding, well, that's too much of an edge case. So regardless of whether this exists, I've decided the norm for this code base is. So you're going beyond acceptance of what is typical and saying this has to be typical. Right. And there are ways that we can design things that deliberately include or exclude certain cases, like how we design our database schemas around marriage modeling, for example, is it's one topic I've seen you use a lot. Yeah, there's that really classic, um, I'm trying to remember the title, but it's... Uh, schemas for the Real World, I think it was. No, 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 no the, the article, but it's called Gay Marriage, the Database Engineering Perspective. And it is at a link that we will provide on the website for this episode. It's definitely a classic of the genre at this point. He goes through every possibility and winds up with graph theory, which is the first time I learned about graph theory. But he just breaks it down so well. Or she, actually. I'm not really sure who it was that wrote it. But it was one of those things that made my jaw drop for the first time and realized, A, this is a legitimate topic in programming, and B, I could actually talk to other people and they'd care too. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that you got excited about relational databases because you can link these things together. And certainly graph databases are like that to another level. I just learned Neo4j like a week ago. And, and so I'm having fun with that. I like stopped halfway through the tutorial and changed my little program. So it will draw a dependency graph of the various repositories that I have downloaded. That's amazing. Well, while we're on this topic of super important yet also interesting and entertaining links, one thing I ran across recently was that somebody has gone and collected a bunch of falsehoods programmers believe about X articles and collected them into a meta list called Awesome Falsehoods. Uh, and I'll put that link in the show notes as well. It's really cool. I'm a big fan of that. I guess this like predates people putting lists of things on <laughs> GitHub, but I, I created a meta list of falsehoods programmers believe and put it on my blog in, I think, 2012. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of this genre of things to think about. I wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that you have an accent in your name. That definitely helps me run into some of the falsehoods that programmers believe on a regular basis. Uh, I went to a meetup at Stripe last night and my pre-printed name tag said A-N-D-R- Unicode thing that stands up and down and then has an intersecting <laughs> halfway line and then the meta character that represents return at the end of a, a line. It was pretty amazing. I've never seen that one before. It's fantastic. I get some decent ones as a hyphenator, but yeah, the accent must be even more exciting. I am intimately familiar with what happens when you render the Unicode accented E entity in the Windows Latin 1 encoding, which is capital A with the tilde sign over it <laughs> and then a copyright symbol nice <laughs> <laughs> one comment on your your perspective origin stories i thought it was interesting that karina got into programming driven by the problems she wanted to solve and andre was in it just for the fun at least in ruby i mean read the book twice before you ever wrote a program <laughs> it was amazing karina what exactly is ruby together Ruby Together is a nonprofit trade organization. It's incorporated in the U.S. It's a 501c 
six, um, which is not the same as a, a more commonly known 501c3, which is a charitable organization. This is a trade association. So the idea here is that everyone in the industry is pursuing a common goal, shared needs, shared interests, and shared investment in solving those problems. Ruby Together's mission is to support the development of core Ruby infrastructure projects that are open source and to make sure it's financially viable to keep those going, to be not just maintained and secure, but also moving forward, you know, adding new features, including things like Gemstash and ultimately in the long term to be able to pay developers to work full time on not just the infrastructure projects, but even eventually things like having a full time community paid developer on Ruby core, on Rails core. I mean, that's a future that we envision and it's going to take a while, but we've definitely made progress in just the year and a half that Ruby Together has existed. So that's the the short term where we are and that's the long term of where we want to be is that some things are just too important for the whole community to be controlled by one or a few companies and that we need to make sure that we can always be putting community needs first when you're talking about infrastructure. So that's why it needs to be a community-based organization, why we feel really strongly that it be something that's widespread community funding, not dependent on one or a few companies. If you think about potential, if you're only funded by one or a few companies, if the industry experiences a downturn or one company has problems and starts having to slash its budget, we cannot allow Ruby infrastructure to just suddenly be having problems. There has to be a wide enough funding base that no individual company's problems become a disaster for the whole community. So that's that's kind of where we're coming from is there's a part that's ethical and there's a part that's just plain old business sense. And it's worth pointing out that uh, this is not a theoretical thing. This has already happened. Uh, there was a, a time a couple of years ago when several members of the Ruby Core team and uh, one person who was also a member of the Rails Core team were all working at AT&T Interactive. And then there was a reorg and suddenly uh, all of those people had to find new jobs. And fortunately, uh, I think at the time it was Heroku who stepped in and started hiring some people and uh, a couple of those people went to other companies as well. But we're still kind of in that same situation where as far as I know, we've got a couple of Ruby Core people working at Heroku and uh, other people maybe scattered elsewhere, but we're still highly dependent as a as a community on corporations who are willing to pay somebody to work full time on language infrastructure. So with Ruby Together, a company can contribute to Ruby infrastructure without the cost of full-time, high, highly paid developer. Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of contributions, uh, you mentioned that it's a 501c6, not a c3. Um, does it still have that same uh, tax-exempt status? Uh, sorry. Does it still have that same property where if I, as an individual, donate, the contribution is tax-deductible? That's a really good question, Sam. So to answer the, the first half of that question, yes, we are a nonprofit, at least in the U.S. The IRS said that we meet their criteria for a nonprofit organization. And to answer the second half of your question, yes, it's tax deductible asterisk footnote. It's not a donation because we're not a charity and you need to be a person or company that uses Ruby to become a member of our trade association. So. If you give us a donation, a contribution, uh, maybe right. Uh, what internally they're they're classified as membership fees, right? You become a member by paying us a fee 
And we use those membership fees to fund work that benefits everyone in our sector of Ruby developers. Um, and so as a result, the way trade organizations are structured, at least under U.S. tax law, is that it's a business expense for a Ruby developer or a Ruby company. Shared infrastructure is a business expense in the same way that you buying a software tool is a business expense. And if you're not in the U.S., I guess I am not a lawyer or an accountant, so I can't offer you like a guarantee. But I have heard back from developers in European and Australia and New Zealand that it can at least be considered a business expense, according to some companies, lawyers and accountants. But if you're outside the U.S., I would say, honestly, you, you need to check with your own lawyer or accountant. Um, I think you just said that it is not a if I get a membership in Ruby together. It is not a tax deductible donation, but it could be considered a business expense for me. That is correct. It is a tax deductible business expense for you to be a member of Ruby together. And then we don't have to give up a big chunk of that money that you just gave us in taxes. We're able to spend the whole amount of that money on Ruby developers and infrastructure. If I were to become a member of Ruby together, what and how often would I pay for that? So the answer to that is that fees are charged on a monthly basis, although you are welcome to pay on any longer basis if you want. A couple of companies just pay once a year because, frankly, it's easier for their accounting department to write one check rather than deal with it every month. Um, so we're happy to take money in in larger chunks of time if that makes more sense for an individual company, but it's charged on a month-to-month basis. And that was really a very deliberate choice so that unlike, say, something like a Kickstarter where you're funding based on faith in the future, you know, that that thing that I'm funding, I hope will pan out. Um, Whereas with Ruby Together, the fee structure is around if you don't see at the end of the month that this is going the way you think it should, you can cancel your membership. But we believe that, you know, with our transparency every month reporting on what we're doing, how much money we're taking in, how much we're spending, what it's, you know, been able to fund, what progress we're making towards the next goal that you will want to next month continue to pay your membership fees. So the structure is really about faith in the community. You put faith in us and we put faith in you. I think that's very different than most of the structures you see for, you know, there's so many different ways to fund open source, right? There are dozens. And these choices have been made really deliberately around certain principles. So that's a core one. So there's various different levels that you can contribute. Individuals, it's really low. It starts as little as, I think, $10. Business memberships start as little as $50 a month. And uh, we encourage companies to consider the upper tiers like $2,000 per month or $5,000 per month. For large companies that are making a lot of profit off of essentially complete dependency on Ruby to work. Uh, I think that things like $5,000 per month, there are a lot of companies for whom that is a blip on their budget. And the cost of, say, another hack of rubygems.org or something of equal impact in the future costs so much more than that. So be looking at the trade-offs and be thinking about the idea of, what is a suitable amount to come in on that reflects the value to the company, that reflects the amount of dependency the company has? So what does Ruby Together membership get you? I think I'll let Andre take that one because we do have a variety of, of 
sort of trade off some benefits that we we have as part of membership. Thanks, Karina. The benefits for individual devs at the $10 level, the benefit is a warm and fuzzy feeling that you're helping us. At the $40 level, you then become a full-on member of Ruby Together. And what that means is we send you an invite to our private members-only Slack, and you then have a vote in the yearly uh, election for the board of directors. And the board of directors includes basically very community-minded Ruby developers who set our priorities for what we're going to take our budget and try to accomplish. Um, and so our, our current members are, include Steve Klabnik, Sarah May, Terrence Lee, the director of the Ruby platform at Heroku, Coraline, who I hear that some of you have heard of, <laughs> and I guess just joined the board, Camille Baldock. She works on the, the data team at Heroku. So really what we're aiming for with this is to have representatives of individual agencies, representatives of the kind of like fiercely individual communitarian mindset and representatives of the like largest, most platformy kind of like use of Ruby. Uh, One thing that I like about this concept is that sometimes when we talk about the community, we think only about individuals, but Ruby Together explicitly acknowledges that the community is a combination of companies and individuals. Absolutely. So we've we've actually structured the company governance to reflect that. And individual members and companies each get a vote in the board elections. And so while it's very true that companies make more money and depend more heavily on this infrastructure for their businesses to function and profit, individuals have more say in what it is that we're actually going to work on by virtue of there being more individuals that we have as members than companies that we have as members. And that was a a deliberate choice that we made while we were setting up how the voting would work. I'm thinking to ask exactly what it is that Ruby Together supports in the interest of ensuring the future of Ruby The reason we want to fund these projects is right now we need them to be stable. We've talked a bit about things like what happens when a person's life changes. I mean, the people who are maintaining these projects now eventually are going to have jobs that have more demands on their time or their family life is going to change or they just burn out on it. For whatever reasons, people come and go and Part of Ruby Together's work is to make sure that there are a new generation of people who are going to have the interest and hopefully skills to be able to participate in these kinds of projects and have an interest in getting involved with them in a longer term. So one of the things that we do with that money, along with funding current developers, is we've been involved in both Rails Girl Summer of Code and Google Summer of Code that provide funding and mentorship for essentially newcomers to the field to work on practical open source projects for several months at a time and really get their hands on the code and really get to spend time with experienced developers as their mentors. So, Andre, you want to tell a little more about what that's been for us? Yeah, absolutely. Ruby Together, as it's grown, has been able to, we've kind of gone for the breadth over depth approach. And this was another decision that we made early on where we want the lottery winning number 
to be very high and we need a lot of people to win the lottery for all of the Ruby infrastructure to collapse. And so instead of hiring a single person to be a full-time dev across all of these projects, what we've done is basically contracted out for five hours a week with a bunch of devs. I am one of the devs. Uh, so I do work on Bundler and on Ruby Gems and sometimes on rubygems.org. There's uh, David Radcliffe. His main job is at Shopify doing ops work. And he spends his like Ruby together time working on rubygems.org. There's Samuel Giddens. Um, he's a student at University of Chicago right now, but he spends his time on Bundler and on Ruby Gems. And he's actually also on the CocoaPods team. He wrote the kind of underlying dependency resolver that CocoaPods and RubyGems and Bundler all use to figure out which versions of packages can work together successfully. As we talked about in uh, this month's newsletter, we actually just hired Liz Avenante, whose main job is at New Relic. Uh, she's working on documentation. We gave her the title Empress of Documentation. And as Bundler and RubyGems come closer together, we're going to need more work to kind of like consolidate and integrate all of that scattered documentation that has accreted over the years. Uh, there's Ellen Marie Dash, who's been working on RubyGems and working on uh, some of our internal tooling that we use to kind of keep an eye on open source projects. Um, there's a, a thing that, that they're working on called How Is that's basically a like, how is this open source project doing? What should we be looking at? What's getting neglected? What's getting taken care of well? And so I have, I have really high hopes that that tooling, once it's complete, will actually be super helpful for us as a team as we're trying to coordinate across all of these different projects and across all of these different people. And so to summarize, we have around five or six people doing around five hours of work per week across the projects that we're able to afford to pay for work on right now, which are Bundler, Ruby Gems, like the gem command itself, and rubygems.org, the Rails app that runs all of the downloads made by both the gem command and by Bundler, and uh, Gemstash, the server that we'll, we'll probably talk more about later. Okay, so Ruby Together is able to pay a few people for their time. I love that because it's it's so much more inclusive. There's only a certain number of people who can give free time. And that's that's absolutely been one of our goals. Honestly, at this point, I think I'm the only person who would be able to give time for free if we weren't able to pay for it. As a college student, Sam definitely needs some kind of job to pay for his like things that he wants to take care of. And so like he wouldn't be he he actually initially got involved in the project because of a grant from Stripe. And that's how he wrote the resolver that wound up going into CocoaPods and then into Bundler. And then I and then was that I, part of Summer of Code? Uh, no, it was part of Stripe's open source grants program, um, where they select a few people and give them some money to work on open source for a while. And then afterwards, I was able to say, "Oh, well, Ruby Together can actually pay you to continue helping with this." And he said, "Oh, okay, cool. I will keep doing that then." And now it's time to a shout out for our supporters. And speaking of both companies and individuals are part of our community, the costs of this episode have been covered by Atomist. Atomist is my employer now, and I'm super excited to be there because we are building developer automation tools such that every company can develop with smooth processes that save them time without having a whole team of full-time people dedicated to developer tooling. Check it out at atomist.com. To me, among other things, it's a, a, an issue that I've been a, an advocate for for quite a while, which is fair pay. 
And usually the context that we talk about fair pay is things like the pay gap, the gender pay gap. But the bottom line is that everyone deserves fair pay. And this is a really common one to treat programmers as, well, you know, as an industry, we're well paid. So stuff that you do for your own love of the community and that benefit the whole community somehow should be things that are done for free. Uh, and it's a really unusual perspective that few other industries share the idea that incredibly valuable work that benefits everyone should be unlimited free labor is really not consistent, frankly, with capitalism in general. Although it is consistent with the idea of large companies capitalizing off of free labor. So it's, you know, it's somewhat consistent with capitalism. But overall, it also makes some big assumptions about individuals. Not everyone in programming is making bundles of money off of it. Um, certainly not everyone works for a startup. Not everyone is working in San Francisco. Lots of people are working at very different wages across the world. So fair pay includes making sure that everyone's work is valued for what it is. And I think this is something that I really value about Ruby Together is that perspective that contributions to open source need to be fairly paid. And that benefits everybody. That's not just an ethical stance. That's a really, I think, just sensible stance for the whole community to have. Amen. Well, so that raises a really interesting question, which is it can be really, really hard to get developers to pay for stuff. Like I make a six-figure salary. And when I see some bit of software that's like 30 bucks, I'm like, do I really need that? I don't know. So how do you overcome that uh, developer inertia and that instinct to be like, well, I could just write this shit myself? It's been a really interesting challenge, to be honest. The biggest thing that helps overcome that inertia is that programmers just feel an intense amount of like positive things about Ruby and about gems and about sharing their code with other developers and getting to use code written by other developers and so, honestly, I, I feel like the majority response from individual devs has been, wow, oh my God, holy shit, it costs that much to keep this up and going? Like, wow, that actually, I really want that <laughs> to stay up and keep going because I use it all the time and I care about it a lot. And okay, like, I guess that is important to me, it turns out, as you mentioned it. Uh, and so that that's actually been really nice to get as feedback from like individual Ruby developers. But uh, I guess the flip side of that is that companies don't have feelings <laughs> and that makes it much harder to convince companies that they also want to give us large piles of money. I'm going to make a distinction there because I think what's interesting to me to observe is how much smaller companies, particularly agencies and consultancies, have been much more willing to step up because my theory on this is that they're much more attuned to the dollar value of an hour's work. And so they notice anytime they're doing non-billable work and what the cost of that is. And so it's much easier to look at something like Ruby Together and say, wow, you can save us money on not doing non-billable work. And I know exactly what this costs the company. And I'd be willing to pay some amount of that to not cost the company this. This is like a great idea. Whereas in large corporations, there's this sort of like budget is a slush fund, right? Or everything has some sort of line item. And as long as Ruby Together is perceived as a charity rather than a business trade association that's there for business purposes to serve profitability, I think it's really hard to have that conversation with large companies because 
they don't have a line item for charity. And so they don't see it as a conversation to have. But Ruby Together is not a charity. And I think that's a major misconception that everyone can really help to dispel. Because when we go in to have those conversations with them, that's the first thing that we have to overcome is this idea of it's a donation rather than it's an investment. So one of the things that you mentioned, Andres, is that once you've said, hey, it costs this much, then individual developers are like, oh, well, yeah, of course. Okay, uh, we should support this. But my question to you would be is, do you think that we're all for, you know, as individual developers, we're all like, hey, we can help you uh, offset, right, this amount of money that's going out the door. But if you're going to start making a profit off of this, like we don't want to support you in the amount of time spent on this. But if we're talking about server costs, that's something completely different. Like, do you feel that is happening there? I feel like there's a, a limited amount of that. I guess, honestly, like at this point, like I've been working on Bundler as an open source project for like six or seven years now. And I mostly get the sense that developers are kind of like mentally calculating that even if I keep doing this for another five years, I'm not going to ever have made enough money to like pay for the hours that I spent over the last six or seven years. I think that like the equation ends up making it look like I'm still doing this out of like caring about the community rather than trying to make a buck. And it's nice to have the excuse to tell your partner, though, that this time is actually also bringing an in income for the family. <laughs> Absolutely true. And, and actually, that's a pattern that we've seen play out multiple times in the people that we have working on open source, right? Like our goal as an organization is to fund development on the open source infrastructure that the Ruby language needs. And that makes it kind of both incredibly easy to get people excited about supporting it because they have such positive feelings about the Ruby language and Ruby infrastructure. But also it means that when we are actually paying money to support that development work, suddenly people with small kids who would otherwise be giving up on donating their free time to keeping Ruby gems up are like, oh, well, this actually helps me underwrite the new cost that just cropped up as a result of this kid. And this is now extremely valuable to me to do. And oh, yeah, now rubygems.org gets security patches applied on a regular basis, rather than on a like, as possible in our spare time around, you know, like requirements of the rest of my life with free work at the lowest priority. And so this this played out for real in, uh, I guess, 2013, when there was a security issue. We knew about the security issue. All of us had it on our, as soon as we have some time to do free work, we'll fix it. And none of us had time to do free work before a hacker figured out how to exploit it. And Ruby Gems was down for like two weeks. Wow. Because we, we had to throw away the servers. We had to re-download every gem and checksum it to make sure it hadn't been replaced with a Trojan. And it just like, it took so much time and effort to recover from that hack. And like, I guess, obviously, I can't guarantee that we won't get hacked now. But I have high confidence that everything that we know about is fixed because we're paying someone to fix everything that we know about. Like, as part of their high priority, I'm getting paid time rather than as part of their 
lowest priority. This is fun, but it's just like throwing away free time for no good reason. Wow, that's such a great, such a great example. This is something I'm passionate about. Like if I, so I do a lot of training stuff here in Central Ohio, and if I get another developer who has tons of experience, who are like, hey, we're working on something, we're pairing on something, and they pull up Sublime, right, text, and they just hit the like, no, I don't want to pay for the license, right, the little button that pops up in Sublime, like I'm going to go crazy because, dude, you've been in the industry for a while, you know, and what is this? And this is something that I see, right, that's like on a smaller scale, but it happens so often, like, hey, you know what, you should probably just go ahead and pay for that, in addition to having brought in a number of speakers here locally and having to also fight for like, yeah, I don't care, you know, if Sandy Metz wants X or Michael Feathers wants X or whoever wants X, like, hey, this person is making contributions to our community and making our community better. And I've I've definitely seen it where companies are like, well, I don't think so. They should just come by for free and we should get this infrastructure, you know, for free, like in, in you guys' case. And it's something I've seen quite a bit. And uh, I don't know. It's not really a question at all, but it is one of those things that really kind of ticks me off because I feel like, you know, once you've hit a certain threshold, we have to kind of really enable, I think, people people like you two uh, to continue working on stuff because it's it's meaningful and there's a lot of people making money off of it <laughs> you know, yeah there's, there's that there's that too it's like you know come on and there's another thing about it you know also it's like as a small business owner and someone who's more or less you know well off financially uh, looking at it software companies right when you're in this business like you have this huge profit margin and we pay a ton of money in taxes right like if your company's doing well just ask what your tax bill was last year. I mean, unless you have some weird inversion thing going on. So we have opportunities here to definitely support organizations, you know, like Ruby Together. Um, but for whatever reason, we, we just don't. I'm sorry. I know that's not a question, but it's something that really, really ticks me off. <laughs> totally. Thanks for the rant. Here, here. Yeah, absolutely. And it really is something that we've seen. And my theory so far is that it's just like the very strong status quo of like programmers build these services for themselves and then companies expect to be able to use them because they're there and they're free because programmers want to make them free to other programmers. There was a good article that came out recently, uh, Retrospective on RethinkDB, and it pointed out that the developer tools market is like a terrible market to be in. One reason is because people will do it for free because we're developers and we like developing things that we use, so we'll, we'll publish those. And the other reason is that reluctance of companies and developers to pay for things, that there's actually very little willingness to turn out money for this. And this is, it's, this it's is kind really of personal because I now work for a company developing developer tools, which is awesome because I love developing tools for myself. Totally. And I, I guess like we, we now fall into that same bucket, right? Like it is actually pretty enjoyable to be able to fix things in Ruby gems or in Bundler when they're a problem. But kind of like, I guess in a similar way, there are companies that I've talked to who felt like it was worth it to assign a full-time salaried employee to work for six months rather than give us a few hundred dollars and take advantage of some work that we had already done. Now you get into like the budget vagaries of I can pay a person because I've got that authorized and that comes out of this budget versus paying another company, which would come out of a totally different budget. And then we get back to that, that bit about small companies are more willing, Karina, I think you said. And Sam said that companies don't have feelings. Well, companies don't make decisions. People do. And in small companies, you've got individual people with like more power to make those decisions and they do have feelings and like 
foresight in some cases. So that might contribute to the small company thing. Too. For, foresight is a nice thing. We could use more more company actors with foresight, I think. I think that might be a theme this season. So if I can actually offer just a moment of hindsight as well, I'm old enough to remember what Ruby and Rails development was like before Bundler came along. And that's very kind of you to remember. It was vendoring everything. And if that didn't work, hoping like heck that you could figure out the magical combination of all the version numbers of all the gems and plugins that you depended on. And then RVM came along and made that slightly easier because you could, you could use a gem set and then not have these gem versions interfering with those gem versions. But still... It it was less than ideal, but uh, I absolutely feel what you were just saying. And in fact, I did an entire conference talk on <laughs> right. just that, right? Like as a person who's been doing Ruby since way back when, and as a person who's worked on Bundler, I, I basically took all of that historical experience and said, hey, I could actually give a conference talk about not just like what exactly is Bundler doing anyway, which but why you never is it about. But like, why is it doing that specific thing? And so I have an entire conference talk that I, I gave at, it must have been RailsConf, because it wasn't the RubyConf that just happened. It's called How Does Bundler Work Anyway? And I have a blog post version of it as well. But it's basically like, how does require work? How does loading things into the load path work? How does RubyGems work? How does Bundler work? And walking through, like, what problems do you have when you're here that leads you to the next solution? And then what problems does the next solution create that leads you to the solution after that? And so it turns out, and I didn't even realize this at the time until I was kind of like working on the talk as background for Bundler, but it's almost like a blindingly bright and clear path of like, oh, I have solved this problem. And this has created a just like, it takes you like 10 seconds of using the new solution to be like, oh, man, now I really have this new problem. <laughs> and that like walks you through 10 years of Ruby DevTools history in 30 minutes. Because like, oh, yeah, actually, now that you have that, you definitely like have this new problem that needs solving. So. And the, I guess the short version of all of that and starting from my rant is like, you kids don't know how good you have it these days. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should have included that at the end of my talk. Old man shouts at cloud. I'm curious, are they problems uncovered or problems created? Like now suddenly it's easy to download things. Uh, so you get past that and you find the next problem. It's easy to download things. Now I've screwed myself by introducing thousands of dependencies. It's absolutely both. And I, and I, I do talk about that a little bit in my talk, but that is an interesting question and something that I, I didn't focus on. Ultimately, I think it's that you uncover the next most painful problem and suddenly that's your newest most painful problem. And at the same time, by making that last generation problem go away, you've allowed yourself to do things that weren't possible before that create new painful problems. And Just so, like, because they're possible doesn't mean they're a good idea. Yeah, that's true. I guess I would certainly rather be in a world where there are thousands of gems than a world where there's only 10 gems because they're so hard to install. Okay, um, Andre, now give us the number of how many gems there actually are. Oh, okay. So there's <laughs> around 120,000 gems now. Uh, that's like by name, right? It's not every version. It's just like a gem with a name. There's around 120,000. And then if you count every single version that's ever been released of those 120,000 gems, uh, we're pushing about 
1.2 million gems right now. So yeah, it's it's really a large number, right? Like it's taken off in a big way and Rubyists have felt very empowered to make gems. And definitely, I guess even related to that, I don't talk about this in my talk at all, but one of the things that Bundler did was ship with a like now standard library level way to create a new gem and a new gem skeleton and be able to run rake release and suddenly it's on rubygems.org. And we saw a really big spike in people creating their own gems because all they had to do was run bundle gem and throw some code in a file and now they had a gem. What you make easy, people will do. Absolutely true. I was struck, Andre, in your origin story, you said that Ruby was useless in 2004 because reuse was so hard. You had to go download somebody's tarball off their website in order to reuse their code. Absolutely true. And people credit Rails with the thing that made the difference for Ruby between being useless or not. And certainly Rails is super important. But without a package manager, without Bundler and Ruby gems, it's not the language, it's the language system that we work in including libraries like Rails. But the package manager is super important for exactly the reason you just enunciated, that if you make it easy for people to share and build on each other's work, they will. Absolutely. And I I honestly feel like that has historically been one of the biggest strengths of the entire Ruby community. Because even back when it was ridiculously hard to share code, people were still super enthusiastic about it. And I guess at that point, in the ecosystem that we had, considering how hard it was, people were just like unreasonably excited about sharing and reusing Ruby code. And I feel like that kind of like ethos has carried through both into the creation of Ruby Gems, which I think the very first like beta of Ruby Gems launched in 2003, 2004. And then it really started like getting buy-in and use around 2005. I remember the the first Ruby conference I ever went to was in 2005 and I got to just like kind of like see these people show up and stare at them in total awe because they were on the Rails core team or they were creating Ruby gems and be like, oh my God, this is amazing. How, how did they get so smart and so capable and so like accomplished? This seems impossible, you know, as a whatever I was at the time, a college junior. And so I, I feel like just that excitement of sharing things really uh, led to Ruby gems, led to Bundler, led to the GitHub Ruby ecosystem that we have because it's Rubyists are just so excited about sharing code with each other. We really are. And I think going back to Jessica's point about solving one set of problems allows us to essentially create whole new ones. The upside is that we've got those, you know, 1.2 million packages sitting on rubygems.org. The downside of that is that the traffic for all of that is enormous. Uh, it was a year ago, let's see, I think it was 280 terabytes per month. And that has skyrocketed, continued to skyrocket. 10 months later, it was already 460 terabytes, which is about 60% growth in 10 months. So you can see that already the numbers are just enormous and they're growing so much bigger. There's this myth that essentially Ruby is in decline. And when you look at those kinds of numbers, not only is Ruby not in decline, but our most troubling problem is that Ruby is still growing and growing and growing. And there's financial cost to the community that right now is not being borne by the community 
for that. I mean, Andre, what is the server bill for rubygems.org at this point? So I guess to be clear, the server bill is currently covered by a combination of actual dollars from Ruby Together members, actual dollars from the Ruby Central nonprofit, and donated services from Fastly. But if there were a single entity covering the entire like server bill in one place, it would theoretically cost something like $40,000 a month. Today. Right. And that's today with clearly increasing usage and expected higher costs over time. So do we think that this is like natural organic interest in Ruby or is it something else, you know? Like, is it just, hey, it's individual kids. Like, hey, I want to get into Ruby and I'm doing stuff, you know? Or, or do we think this is more corporate usage or, I mean, any idea about that? I think it's both. At this exact moment in our infrastructure life, it's very hard to tell who exactly it is that's asking us for gems because data centers don't differentiate between people. Like, we know that U.S. East downloads a bajillion gems but we don't know who the individual people that are renting computers from Amazon are. And that's something that we're interested in trying to get better at figuring out. But the overall story seems to be everyone's really excited about using a lot of Ruby. Even if people aren't talking about how Ruby is the newest, coolest stuff anymore at the moment, there are still a huge amount of Ruby developers, more than there ever have been before. And they're writing and deploying a huge amount of Ruby code more than there ever has been before. And my sense is that there are a lot of companies, like for a while there, Rails was pretty much synonymous with a certain type of Silicon Valley startup, right? If you know, if you were doing a startup, you were hiring as many Rails developers as you could find. But there's a spectrum from, you know, individual enthusiasts just learning to program all the way up to like giant corporate entity using Rails and 50 gems. And only towards the very big end of that spectrum does it make sense for a an organization to stand up its own private gem server. So I would imagine that a whole lot of that traffic is coming from that middle section of companies that are big enough to have a couple Rails developers, but not big enough to have bothered spending the time standing up a private gem server. I guess, interestingly, anecdotal evidence from employees at the very biggest end of companies is that mid-end companies, as they grow, are like, oh, we should stand up an internal gem server. And then as they grow again, they're like, it's not worth the huge amount of operational costs (laughs) to run our own internal gem servers. Ruby Gems actually does a really good job of running a worldwide infrastructure that allows all of our data centers fast access. Why don't we just get it from them? <laughs> so never mind. Uh, I mean, and I guess I would say not never mind. Like I you are actually true like that is absolutely true. And then there's like an additional life cycle step beyond that where they, <laughs> they outgrow their own ops team. And the ops team says it's no longer worth it to spend our time on this. We could just make the rubygems.org ops team take care of it. And not pay for it. Ooh, ooh. For instance, Stripe totally has their own RubyGems server. And the reason for that is security because you want control over the code that is getting deployed out to all your production sides. So if you had Ruby gems with this infrastructure to make it possible to download gems throughout the world. And also you had like an organization backing it that had resources to make sure it stayed secure. That would be ideal. That would be ideal. And Stripe is actually basically the Ruby, the founding member of Ruby together. They turned over money to the bundler project when that actually meant writing Andre a personal check 
And I then took the money from Stripe that they were giving me for really like no particular like benefit to themselves. They didn't put any strings on it. They just said like, we use and like Bundler and if giving you money will help make it better, here's some money. And I took that money and used it to pay for lawyers and pay for incorporation costs and get the IRS to give us nonprofit status. And Stripe still to this day is by dollar amount, the highest contributor to Ruby together on every single month. So I very much feel like Stripe is a company that recognizes how good it is for them to be supporting that. Great job, Stripe. Yay. And now that we've loved on Stripe for being the biggest contributor, hey, every other company, wouldn't you like to outbest them? Come on. You want to come in higher, right? Yeah, yeah. They should be at the top of the list. Right? Like we're a competitive industry. Come on, y'all. Come compete. So I have a question. I have a question about Jim Stash. So at my place of work, we use Jim in a Box, um, which you know, meets our needs. Um, yeah. What are some differences? Gemini Box has been around for a while. So uh, Gemini Box is a private gem server. So you stand it up, uh, you create private gems that you don't want to push to public Ruby gems, and then you put those in Gemini Box, and then you can add that Gemini Box server to your gem file as a source and say, well, I want these gems to come from this source, Gemini Box over here. And that way you can have your own gems that are internal, but you get like the versioning benefits, you get the speed of installation of a tarball versus a Git repo benefits. And everyone can kind of like see the promises you're making via versioned packages rather than like running along alongside the bleeding edge Git repo. And so Gemstash is a product that Ruby Together funded the development of as a direct response to talking to companies that we're giving Ruby together money. And it's both a private gem server like Gem in a Box is, but it's also a caching Ruby gems mirror. And so this is really the thing that makes Gemstash interesting because you can run Gemstash on your laptop and once you've installed a gem from Ruby gems, you will never download it again. You can run Gemstash in your office and tell Bundler that when it sees rubygems.org, it should instead look at your in-office mirror. And now the 50 dev boxes in your office all only have to talk to rubygems once. And after that, Bundle install is a local operation on the local network. Man, can, I need that for Elm. In retrospect, it's such a good idea. And so, and then like the, the last and big one is that if you have a data center, and it's very common to have like 50 or 100 separate app servers in a data center, you can run a single gem stash in that data center, and you've just like solved the, wow, it's really expensive to fetch the same gem 100 times from the internet problem without having to check a giant tarred gzipped blob into your Git repo, which has been kind of like the traditional solution for that. And it's it's miserable. Like, I, yeah. So... Gemstash, I guess, is both an effort for us to support that kind of like private gem infrastructure in a way that looks just like Ruby gems. So like Gemstash supports gem push and gem yank, where gem in a box has like written its own client infrastructure. And so you use a separate gem in a box command to push a private gem. The way Gemstash is written, it uses the same public API as rubygems.org. And so you say gem push to this server and now you have it in your gem stash and then like i was saying that that secondary factor of like a pass-through cache slash mirror 
of rubygems.org is a really powerful thing under certain circumstances. And so that's why we built Gemstash to like address that pain point that we heard from companies where honestly, kind of like big companies, we'd talk to them and every single one of them said, yeah, we've assigned a full-time employee for months to solve this local internal gem server slash Ruby gems mirror problem. And so we said, oh, well, we can solve that better than you and we can solve it in less work than you because we're already familiar with the problem space. So I think a really concrete example that we can look to in the past is Heartbleed. When OpenSSL, uh, before Heartbleed happened, OpenSSL was getting something like about $2,000 per year total contributions to support a handful of developers to work on OpenSSL. Now, the entire industry depends on OpenSSL, and nobody was thinking about it at all. Clearly not financially, but in general, we just so much infrastructure that we just take for granted. And the moment we stopped taking it for granted was when Heartbleed happened, and suddenly every company had to scramble. And the amount of lost time, the amount of, I think, and often, you know, in many cases, was lost goodwill. You know, customers don't always understand why something isn't working. They may just look at your company and say, well, this product isn't working. Your server is down. Clearly, you know, your company is terrible. Why should I do business with you? And so there was all this cost of doing support. There was developer time. Altogether, the industry lost over a half a billion dollars on just cleaning up after Heartbleed. Now, you look at that kind of thing and you say, I don't know what the number would be if a similar situation happened within the Ruby community, but you can say on an individual company basis, what would be the cost of a major, you know, security breach again of something like rubygems.org? What was the cost when it happened last time? You can look at those and come up with some real world numbers of what is the value to our company in making sure that these projects are stable, that they're secure, that they're understanding community-wide problems and addressing them, it matters. So compare that to the cost of a monthly membership in Ruby Together. And Ruby Together looks like a really good idea, (laughs) along with SSL Together and who knows what else. It it also gets at the point that you like to think that software is right at once, use it forever. But very few programs are like that. Oh, software is a, is an ongoing expense. Just using software is an ongoing expense. It is not a capital expenditure. Yeah, definitely. One of the big outcomes of Heartbleed was that people suddenly cared enough about OpenSSL to donate money to the project. And there are very succinct and clear write-ups of what the outcomes and results from that are. Heartbleed led to enough donations to cover the cost of working on OpenSSL for exactly one year. That year is now over. OpenSSL no longer has funds to sustain ongoing development. And if there is another Heartbleed hiding inside OpenSSL somewhere that no one has found yet, it won't get fixed until it's out in the wild because no one has the money to actively work on it right now. And so seeing that happen basically served as a a giant wake-up call for me to say, oh, this needs to be not something where I go to a company and say, please give me a pile of money and I'll go away. This needs to be something where I go to a company and say, 
this is a danger to you and your company and a huge potential cost every single day that you're in business. And we need to keep preventing it from costing you money, basically, as long as this matters to you. Yeah, that's a question I get asked on a fairly regular basis is why are you doing things this way? It seems like it's hard. Why don't you just go to a couple of companies and get a big fat grant? The answer, first of all, is that there aren't that many companies that are offering big fat grants. But a bigger problem is just sustainability. You're going to need to go back next year and hope that, again, you can get that big fat grant from them. We need a base of ongoing contributions, not a one-time infusion. In some ways, that's worse. Um, in the Django community, they had one of those one-time infusions they used to pay a developer to work on Django. The money ran out after a couple of months. And then what? You've got someone who was working full-time, who's taken time out of their life and career. And when the money runs out, what does the project do? What does the individual do? We have to be able to make promises that developers can depend on. As Andre said, we're paying for about five hours per week to various developers. When you can make a promise that that's going to happen every week, then they can also make an arrangement with their employers to say, this is the promise I'm making to you too. I'm only available 35 hours a week for this job or whatever it is because I've made a commitment to five hours a week somewhere else. So it's about making things really logistically possible as well. When we make a commitment to developers, they're able to make a commitment to their family and their employers. So one-time versus sustainability matters for a lot of different reasons. The subscription model totally works for software. And when you have community infrastructure that's helping everyone, then your subscription can be very small as part of a large group of subscriptions. But it's still, if you're not paying for software maintenance, you're not getting maintained software. Absolutely. And that's really what we're hoping for is that a large enough number of people will be able to chip in and a large enough number of companies will be able to chip in that we can not just keep this from falling over, but actively make it better for everyone who uses Ruby. Yeah. And we talked earlier about how one reason it's hard to get people to pay for development tools is that developers will develop them for free, but that's not sustainable because either they become abandonware as the developers are developing them, have, are done with developing them. I want to say the word development several more times in the sense. Thank you, Steve Ballmer. Or that tool that I developed that I was so proud of becomes an, a burden to the individual until I choose to give it up. So yeah, buy your Sublime license. And, Absolutely. And ask your company to join Ruby together. I, I think this is an interesting example because some things are harder than others to make. When somebody looks at that license fee for Sublime and says, eh, I don't want to pay for it. Okay, well, you have other options. You could use lots of free other options like, say, Vim or Emacs. And the person's answer usually is, oh, that's hard. It would take me time to learn to use that. This is so much faster and easier. Well, yes, it takes time. What is your time worth? It's probably definitely worth the cost of that licensing fee. And similarly, okay, yeah, you could, in theory, make another bundler. Uh, how much time and expertise do you think it would take to be a person who can create another bundler and maintain it? These are hard niche problems, and there's only a few people in the Ruby community who have currently the expertise to be able to pull that off. So it makes so much more sense to pay people to do stuff that they're good at rather than have 
so many people inside companies kind of chipping away at problems with this that they don't know as well how to solve. They're spending a lot of time on stuff that isn't the company's core competence, their core product, and they can't do it nearly as cost effectively as people who are working on these projects already. So it just is kind of silly the way that we're approaching things right now as an industry. What is the value of your time invested in making a semi-goodish result? It doesn't make sense. Absolutely. All right, it's time for a listener shout-out. Today's shout-out goes to Polly Shandorf. Polly is a nerdy teacher, that's nerdy with a three, uh, on Twitter. And as you might guess from that, she's a former school teacher who has made the switch to a programming career. Uh, I paired with Polly at Ruby D Camp a few months ago, and I can personally attest that she is indeed a very cool person. So thanks very much for your support, Polly. We want this to be a 100% listener-supported show. If you feel inspired to help us out like Polly does, uh, head over to patreon.com slash greater than code. Any donation will get you into our supporters-only Slack, and we have some other perks as well that you can see on our Patreon page, but uh, any amount is definitely appreciated. Thanks, listeners. All right, well, we'd like to end the show with a uh, period of short reflection. And uh, that can be a call to action or something that you're going to take away from this or uh, something that really surprised you and is going to stick with you on the way home, whatever. And uh, so there's been so much that we've talked about today that uh, just has my brain buzzing. It's hard to pick one thing. So I'll go with the easy route, which is that during this call, I have uh, officially become a friend of Ruby Together and I'm donating now. So thank you for reminding me to get off my butt and actually do that because, yeah, this stuff is really important. And thank you for your work. Awesome. Thank thank you, Sam. Sam, that's awesome, except it's not donating. Damn it! You've joined Ruby Together. I am a, a member friend or something. Before this podcast, I didn't know what Ruby Together was. Based on the name, I thought it was going to be another warm, fuzzy Ruby thing. But it's much more important than that. This is an advancement in the software industry as a whole to form a trade organization that is a business related to supporting all businesses and people and making our software infrastructure sustainable. As in the Heartbleed and Open SSL example, this is something that many, many more software communities desperately need. And I hope that Ruby Together is the front wave of an innovation that gives us a sustainable software infrastructure even more widely than Ruby. I would love to see that happen. That's that's definitely kind of the, the underlying idea is hopefully that this model can apply to other situations. And I know that there are some echoes of this kind of situation happening in the Python community, although I'm much less familiar with it than I am with the Ruby community. And so while I'm only prepared to make this this kind of situation happen for Ruby, I really hope that other developers and other communities will try to figure out if this is something that they can make sustainable as well. So my takeaway today is that OpenSSL is back to being insufficiently funded. I did not know that, and that scares the pants off of me. Ruby Together is an important project for this community, for Ruby community. But, oh, my God, do so many other projects need something supporting them, too. There's things like the Linux Foundation You know, there's so many different models out there for how to do that, but there's so many projects that have insufficient or no funding at all, and we're all relying on them. So that scares me a lot, and I think it's part of the reason why I care so much about Ruby Together is because these kinds of things have to exist. 
we just can't be gambling like this. That's really frightening to me. I will say that there is a great report on that bigger picture called Roads and Bridges, the Unseen Labor Behind Our Digital Infrastructure. It was written for the Ford Foundation by Nadia Eggball, who has been doing a great series of talks drawing on the knowledge that she developed for this. It's a real long read, and it's a really worthwhile read that gives a great insight into just how many problems we have with depending on open source infrastructure, not because the dependency is bad, but because it's the unpaid open source infrastructure that we're so reliant on and where that shifts the burden that companies are making on all of these projects. So I really recommend reading or at least skimming it and seeing some of Nadia's talks. Her most recent was a keynote at LinuxConf AU just a week or so ago. Cool. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to take the, the easy way out and say that my reflection is that I really hope that this has been convincing. And I really hope that the devs and companies that listen to this show and that care about Ruby will join as members and will help us keep doing this work to actually keep all of Ruby gems and all of the code sharing ecosystem that is such a big part of what makes Ruby great continuing to work into the future. So yes, join Ruby together, tell your manager why your company should join Ruby together and tell them why it should be at an aggressively high level that really reflects the value and importance and profitability of their dependence on Ruby and Ruby infrastructure projects. So come in and come in at a level that really can help us to do important work that you think is worthwhile and know is necessary. Yes, please. Right. Well, thank you, everybody. This has been a really uh, informative and illuminating show, as always. And uh, it was wonderful to talk to you all. And listeners, we will be back at you next time. 